Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And I read this book. It's been actually a bit. The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. And I found it one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. I have pages and pages of notes on it. And the author, Paul Bogard, is here with us today. Welcome. Oh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I found was so fascinating, Paul. And let me just say real quick, Paul teaches creative nonfiction at James Madison University in Virginia. And you have this book, you have an anthology editor of the anthology, Let There Be Night, Testimony on the Behalf of Dark. You have a phenomenal children's book, which is <laughs> such a good pairing with this conversation. You've got kids that are listening and they're fascinated by this conversation. It's called What If Night by Paul Bogart. So lots of resources there. But this is a topic, Paul, that I haven't thought too much about. And then you have this whole book on it with all of these interesting things that have never really crossed my mind too much. And so I was fascinated just at how fascinating a topic could be that maybe some of us have not thought about too much. So the end of night, searching for natural darkness in an age of artificial light. Can you tell us how you even got into this subject to begin with? Sure. Um, you know, it, it actually starts in childhood. I grew up in Minneapolis and uh, we have a cabin in the northern part of the state. And so all my life I've been going up there and having firsthand experience with real night. So, you know, walking out on the dock and seeing the Milky Way over the lake and, you know, just uh, true darkness, as we'd call it, natural darkness. And that just kind of imprinted on me. It, I saw what night is supposed to look like, saw what natural night is like. And Many years later, when I was uh, looking for a subject to write about, I started thinking uh, about the stars and how I'd always wanted to learn the stars, learn the constellations. And pretty quickly, um, when you endeavor to learn the constellations, you find out that it's hard to see most of the constellations for most people, you know, if you live in a city or a suburb, because of light pollution. There's just, there's so much artificial light in the sky that it makes it really tough to see constellations beyond kind of the the big ones, the Big Dipper or Orion, kind of the real obvious ones. It's, it's almost impossible to see a lot of the other ones. And so I became really interested in this subject of light pollution. And um, pretty quickly, you find out that, you know, not being able to see the stars as important as that might be is kind of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this issue. And uh, it affects us in so many other ways. And it's also an issue that we... Um, uh, it's readily in our ability to control. It's not one of these issues that just, you know, sort of immediately feels like, what can one person do? Or what am I supposed to, you know, how do I deal with this? It's like, no, this is from your own house up to any community that you're in, you can affect the lighting. And when it comes to kids, you know, the real first step, I'm sure we'll talk about all this stuff too, but the real first step is just, um, is taking kids out into the night and, you know, pointing at the stars and, and introducing them, making, helping them feel comfortable after dark because we live in a society where we're just uh you know it gets dark and we go inside and we miss a lot of beauty mm -hmm. and we turn on all the lights I, you know i read your book paul and then i had this experience where we went to a state park we live in michigan and a lot of the state parks were doing these lantern walks in the winter once a month and you go down these paths and i just read your book and so they say at the beginning of the walk, do not use a flashlight. Don't turn your phones on. They have these lanterns that are fairly spread apart from each other that are not bright. Yeah. And you want to. Your your whole insides are like, turn the right. flashlight on your phone or bring a flashlight. And they said not to. Your eyes are going to adjust. And you kind of think, yeah, right. They're like, no way. It's so dark. 
And then if someone else had their, because it would happen a couple of times where people wouldn't listen and they would have their light on, they passed you and it like messes up with the whole thing. But I had just read your book and I just saw it was such a, I like got to feel it and do it and experience it. And so one of the things that you talk about is just this concept of sight and how we actually are fairly adapted, not as much as the nocturnal animals and not as much as the crisp. I can never say the word crepuscular, crepuscular, whatever. (laughs) The ones that are at dawn and dusk, but that we, our eyes can open a lot. So can we start there with what are our abilities when we go out at night, just on a physical level? Yeah. I mean, so much of the, uh, the experience of night is really sensual in the sense of our sight for sure. And I'll talk about that, but also, you know, what do we hear? What do we smell? How do we feel? So much of what I love about nighttime is just the evocative nature of, you know, a, a, a warm breeze in the summer and the sound of the crickets. And, uh, you know, we're in Minnesota, so a loon, you know, on, a, on the lake and the scent of autumn, all those things. And then sights, you know, we live in such a sight-oriented society. We, we um, navigate the world primarily with the sense of sight. Um, we describe things in terms of what, how we see them. And when it comes to nighttime, our ability to see at night is not as strong, obviously, as it is during the day. And you pair that with the fact that uh, most of us don't spend a lot of time outside. We don't spend enough time that our eyes begin to adapt to the dark, like your experience, you know, when you're out there for long enough. And the amazing thing is that when you do spend enough time outside at night and you're not surrounded by artificial light or you're not staring at your phone, your eyes do begin to adapt. And I'd say within a half hour, you're really, you're really able to see a lot more than you were when you first came out. And with, boy, if you're able to stay out an hour and a half, two hours, that kind of thing, it's really pretty amazing what your eyes are able to do. I remember I did a, uh, an experiment one summer where I went out on the dock in the North, in Northern Minnesota and let my eyes adapt for a half hour or so. And then I shut my eyes, ran inside and flicked on the lights in the bathroom and stared at the mirror because I wanted to see how big my pupils were from uh, being outside. And it's really, it's, it's kind of neat to see. It was, uh, I wouldn't, don't try this at home kind of thing, but it really got to the point that our eyes do have an ability to adapt. I mean, we're never, as you say, we're never going to see as well at night as, as other, some other creatures that have really adapted to see at night, but we certainly can see better than we probably think we can. And uh, especially if we get away from artificial lights, because as you say, if you're outside and, and a car drives by and you you know see the headlights or you look at your phone, your dark adapted ability just goes away kind of instantly. Yeah, what an interesting thing to try with kids. And we really remember, I mean, we did this lantern hike. It sticks in your memory because it's different, it's unique, and it's exciting. And that's one of the things that you talked about too, which I was not expecting. You were talking about even as a child, you know, and everyone has a little bit of that fear of the dark. It feels a little bit like, what's out here? I don't really know. And then you said, you say, my fear of the dark, or at least the response, it's like a little bit of excitement, this risk, it sparks inside me, is something I value. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it kind of hits on this topic of, you know, we talk about like, well, why would you go out in the cold? Why would you want to experience any type of fear? Mm-hmm. I'm a, I think most people are like, nope, I don't want to experience any of that. Like you were saying, well, there might be wolves, but realistically, you know, you're safe, but it, it does something on the inside of you. So can you talk about why a parent or an adult 
might want to have that little bit of like, adrenaline rush or are you talking about like something that stops your legs <laughs> yeah i think i told the story of again being at our cabin and and the you know the cabin's down by the water by the lake and then to get up into the woods you kind of climb this hill behind the house and into the woods and i just i remember that um that experience of of just kind of physically not being able to you know climb the hill uh into the woods because i was so nervous about uh being in the woods at night by myself and that's one of the things you know i'm here i am the guy who wrote this book about you know the value of darkness and the threats from light pollution but i readily admit that this fear of the dark is i feel it, it it's something that actually i think you know probably most of us feel it's it, i i would argue it's a big reason why we have this problem of light pollution we try to light up everything all over the place you know because we are afraid of the dark even if um there's you know um not really any reason to be afraid in, in a lot of cases we could talk more about that too but getting to your point i mean i just think you know what comes to my mind is that um this experience of being excited or nervous or anxious about being out at night. I mean, you just, you feel more alive, right? You just feel kind of, you know, this is a, a primal reaction to um, being a human being on the planet. And it it is quite thrilling. And uh, I think the more that you learn about nighttime and the more that you learn about darkness, certainly for me, what happened is that you have that primal fear, but it really pretty quickly moves into a sense of respect, um, you know, that you respect that, Number one, that you're not really in danger. There's nothing that's going to, you know, wolves or bears or whatever, wherever you are, more afraid of you by far than you are of them. It's just a respect for the value of how important darkness is for us as people and for all of creation, really. And to get the, you know, I, I'll tell you, it's amazing how much less fearful I am at night if I'm outside with just one other person or a group of people or something. It's like, we're all fine, right? You realize that pretty quickly. I think it's something happens when you're alone that makes it a little more nerve wracking, but you pretty quickly, at least for me, feel that um, that sort of primal excitement and, and, that, and then that sense of respect for, wow, this is really half our life is, is darkness, you know? Um, and uh, it, it's something to explore. Wow. Right. And we don't, we don't experience hardly any of that, I would say, as a typical person. That's right. Hardly any experience in the night, even though, like you said, it's half our light. Let's pop on the security piece because you talked about it. I, I thought this is so interesting, Paul. Okay. So you talked about, I would have never thought about this. So one of the big things is we've got lights and the purpose, everyone thinks it's for security, right? We want, we feel safer. So we've got lights at night and you talk about how the light actually also helps the criminals. I, I don't think anyone's ever thought about that. Right. I never thought about that. Yeah. This was one of my favorite sentences. <laughs> it's a question. Who benefits most from a big security light at 3 a.m. in the morning? Is it the resident who's fast asleep inside or is it the burglar who's sorting through the toolbox? I mean, right? I mean that makes a lot of sense. So can you talk, you say, is there statistics statistical evidence to back up the use of using artificial light at night to help with security yeah so this is you know this is is the big kind of uh elephant in the room and and as i say in the book you know that the chapter on safety and security comes pretty quickly the third chapter in the book because you can talk about you know how important it is to see the stars and how important darkness is for all these reasons but in the back of so many people's minds it's what you just said yeah but we need all this light for safety and security so we have to 
and talk about a primal reaction. I mean, this is really something that's hard to um, hard to talk about with with folks. Um, and and uh, this was a challenging chapter for me to write, in part because um, uh, I am a, a upper middle class uh, white guy who lives in a you know relatively safe area. I haven't, I don't often experience places where it might actually be dangerous at night. And I'm certainly, I, you know, for the chapters you read, I, I spent a lot of time talking with my friends who are women, just saying, you know, what's it like for you? How do you feel? Because that's, that's a different issue. But when it comes to actual statistics about crime, um, first of all, there's not an enormous amount of research that's, that's done with related to light and darkness and crime and safety. So a lot of the way that we light is just based on assumptions um, that because some light clearly helps us see and move around and be safer, quote unquote, that more light, ever more light will help us, you know, be safer, safer, safer. And one of the things I do in the book is I just show, for example, that, you know, bright lights that are unshielded, meaning they, they're shining up into the sky or into our eyes or that kind of thing, actually, they make it harder for us to see because it, it closes down our pupils. So we don't see very well. They cast shadows where the bad guys can hide, for example. And I think most significantly, they create the illusion of safety. So we've been trained to think, just as we think like, ooh, it's dark, that's dangerous. We think, ooh, there's bright lights, I'll be safe. And there's just, you know, that's just not borne out by any kind of research. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that um, what's unfortunate is that we we allow our, our, our fear of the dark and our assumption of this, you know, sort of darkness is bad and light is good to kind of override a real thoughtful um, response to the beauty of night and how important night is and kind of the many costs that we accrue through our overuse of light. Well, let's talk about some of those costs. But before we get there, there was this one cool thing, because we got a, a light meter within the past couple of years, because it's kind of fun to measure how much light versus inside versus outside, even during the day when you have the lights on, because it's about the circadian rhythm. So. I think inside, you know, we're always in the hundreds, 500, 600. You step outside, even on a cloudy day, you're into the 8,000. If it's a sunny day, you're in the tens of thousands. You say, and one lux is one candlelight worth of light, one to one. Mm. And you talk about in Berlin, five lux and everything is fine. You can see the pavement, you can see the moon, and you can walk peacefully. Five, five lux. Yeah, it's incredible. And it gets back to what we were talking about with our eyesight, um, you know, that we're, we really are able to see well. The, one of the stories that always stays with me is that, you know, the if you, you think about the development of artificial light, so we've gone kind of from, from oil lamps to gas lighting to then in the 19th century, electric lighting. And the move when we went from gas lighting to electric lighting shocked people because they were so in the cities, you know, you think about a London or a Paris or gas lighting compared to electric lighting is, um, well, if you ever have the chance to be in London, for example, sometimes they still have some of the old gas lamps there. And you basically, you look at them and you think, are those things even on? Because they're, they're so dim compared to elect the electric lights that we're all used to now. But when the electric lights Robert Louis Stevenson, who's some an author that some people may know, said of electric lights, he called them the lamp of nightmares because they were so bright. Wow. And it just shocked these our eyes that were used to gaslighting. 
so interesting. Like I said, it's a topic. <laughs> you know, like, hey, I don't really thought about this too much, but then there is a depth here. You talk a lot about the cost, and one of those simply is our sleep. You say every major disease is associated in some extent with short sleep. Short sleep means long light. So let's start there about our sensitivity to light. I mean, goodness, I mean, <laughs> don't really think about it. We got to turn the lights off. So what's going on with our sleep in relation to artificial light? Yeah, I guess I would start with this idea that um, um, a biologist told me about, which is this idea that, you know, he said everything on earth evolved with bright days. We need that bright sunshine, right? And dark nights. And that's the part that we miss, right? So we, everything evolved with light and dark and darkness is so important for us. And so what we're finding is that a lot of, um, there are a lot of negative impacts or seem to be a lot of negative impacts from our exposure to artificial light at night, the impacts to our physical, mental, even spiritual health. And when it comes to sleep, it disrupts our sleep and it contributes to sleep disorders. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, I, I, I thought this was so fascinating that a lack of sleep or short sleep is tied to every major disease, obesity, cancer, depression, you name it. And the guy that I talked to, Stephen Lockley, who's at, at Harvard, he said, our understanding of sleep and sleep deprivation and short sleep is kind of where our understanding of smoking was in the 1950s, right? So we're gathering that it's, we understand it as we understood that, you know, inhaling smoke might not be so great for your lungs. We're also understanding how short sleep, not getting enough sleep impacts all these other aspects of our health. We don't necessarily know as much as we will know about it in in the future but he really is convinced that it's huge and i think that what happens for a lot of people is that they don't sleep in the dark uh, that's the bottom line and that would be one of the big messages that i when i talk to people i say um you know one thing you can start doing tonight is, is sleep in the dark certainly you want to turn off all the lights that you can make sure any you know there's not street lights coming in from through the windows that kind of thing uh you know, even I try to cover any kind of, uh, you know, clocks or radios or whatever in my in my room, just try to create that darkness um, that our bodies need for optimal health. And this gets to the point of our overuse of light at night, light pollution, because a lot of people are in, in places where uh, they have light shining in their window, you know, from their neighbor or for the from the street light outside, that kind of thing. And it really is tough to get into that darkness. So, Light pollution, you know, robs us of the stars, but it also uh, impacts our our physical our physical health. Mm -hmm. You had interesting things in here about diaries from the 19th century that more or less they just went to bed when it was dark and they got up when it was light. And it was interesting to think about here in Michigan. It's December, so the nights are longer, the days are shorter. Um, it's actually, I mean, this is it. We're like in it, right? Like this is, it's December 21st. So th this is in, the, we're in this long night, short day, and people would actually stay in bed. Uh, you <laughs> would feel pretty rested. They may not even be sleeping the whole time, but they would stay in bed for the most part from dark till dawn, I guess. What a different way to live. And so you had written in here, this exposure to light at night is completely unnatural and alien. And there was a funny thing where you said, like if you get up to go to the bathroom, you turn the light on. I don't know if I can find it. And it's like, hello, toilet. But your brain says, oh, it's the day. It's the daytime. Can you talk about the circadian rhythm piece of it, which is a big thing in the book that 
light is a signal. We have these receptors in our eye that are measuring light and time of year. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable um, what biologists have found. And again, it goes back to that idea that we, you know, we evolved with this natural cycle of bright days and dark nights and with the seasons so that our circadian rhythm, which a, a nice way to think of it is is kind of the um, the conductor of the orchestra that is our all our organs in our bodies, for example. Um, so uh, the circadian rhythm kind of makes sure that all the all your organs, all your inner processes are in sync with each other, healthy. Uh, they're acting as as they should. And the circadian rhythm follows that natural cycle of of light and dark. This is why um, so many of us are. You know, when uh, the time change happens and it's only an, you think it's only an hour, I should be able to adjust. But your circadian rhythm is like, wow, what, you know, what happens? Um, wow. Let alone, you know, if you international travel and jet lag and that kind of thing. So our bodies have evolved to follow this natural cycle and artificial exposure to artificial light at night really throws that cycle off. So as you say, if you get up in the middle of the night for whatever reason and you, and you turn on the light, a bright light, um, it stops the production of, of melatonin in your body, um, and it confuses your circadian rhythm. Your circadian rhythm, the receptors say, why am I seeing this light? That You know, it must be daytime or something like that. Um, and it just, it causes confusion. Um, and so, um, you know, this is especially rough for folks who work at night, for example, work the night shift or work uh, different shifts where their body never gets into a, a rhythm, as it were. It is, uh, one, again, just a little hint, you know, it, it, that this is a nice reason to have a red light, for example, in the bathroom. So if you get up in the night and you need to have some light in the bathroom, you can turn on the, the red, get a little kid's uh, uh, night light with a red bulb, for example. You'll be able to see fine. Your light, going back to what we've been talking about, your eyes will be adjusted to the dark. And you'll be able to see everything you need to see in that red light. And you won't, you know, stop the production of melatonin or confuse your circadian rhythms, you can, you'll go back in and go back to sleep. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? 
If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. Can I ask you this, Paul, because I was intrigued in the book. I've actually never heard anyone talk about it, and I don't even know if it's a thing. Obviously, in the animal kingdom, they have more hair when it's the winter. Their bodies adjust to the changes of the seasons in all sorts of different ways. And you read about the different glands, the pineal, pineal, I don't know, but that they're different sizes depending on how close the animal is to the equator. So all these interesting things in animals. And so the light, it gives two signals, right? Like day, night, but also the time of the year, the changes of the seasons. Does that matter for humans to know the time of the year? I think it must. I don't know. Uh, that's something I don't, I'm not any any authority on, but I, I really do think that um, sure we we would respond to that uh, to that as well. Um, Isn't it interesting? I've never read anything about it. I've never heard anyone talk about it. I never thought about it much until I read your book. But you said these cells in our eyes, and so maybe that's you know further research will sometime be done that the cells in our eyes they determine both light and day and the time of the year, which obviously we see that physical reaction in the animal kingdom. And yet for our own selves, it's like, oh, you put on your coat, you don't. I mean, there's not much to think about, but I wonder what's going on internally. So anyway, that was a little fascinating to me, as well as this circadian trough. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated mainly because we have teens. And so you're talking about school. So can you tell us what the circadian trough is? There was a couple of things that was interesting. I never heard of the circadian trough and I'd never heard about this morning versus evening people. And that has to do with how long their circadian rhythm is. Mm -hmm. Circadian trough is that time, I think between two and four in the, in the morning where you're just really, um, it's really important that you're you're in that sort of deep sleep, uh, and it's really important for you to not disrupt that. So I think, you know, just anecdotally, I remember when I was working on the book and I went to, uh, I was working at Wake Forest University in North Carolina at the time, and I went over to campus at 11 o'clock to join the night shift of cleaners. They they come in and clean the, um, clean the campus well during the night. And my goal was to stay with them all night. And I tell you, about 1.30, I just thought, I cannot do this. And I didn't know anything about the circadian trough at that point, but it that is what was I was really running up against that, just that point of which your body just says, enough of this foolishness, we need to sleep. And so you can imagine kind of the, um, I want to say trauma, but you know, confusion would be a, a less uh, dramatic word that folks who do work through the night who aren't used to that who just have to power through that time somehow are really going against that that time you know the issue of the night owl or the the morning the lark they sometimes call it um, is an interesting one i think that just anecdotally again or through experience i know people who identify as you know both i talked to a 
one of the nurses that I talked to who works in the ER in the book, you know, identifies as a night owl and says she loves it, you know. But when I talk to, um, you know, Stephen Lockley at Harvard and others, they kind of disputed the idea that, disputed that idea a little bit. And and they, they said that really, you know, staying up through the night, um, you might feel like you like it, but it's still having an effect. So I don't know that, you know, there's a definitive answer to that, but I think it's safe to say that for most of us, we need to get our sleep and we need to get it at night. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it might shift it even just a little bit because you were talking about some people have a clock that cycles close to 23.8 hours and others is 25 hours. So there's that slight shift might change when your trough happens, just like a little bit. Like I've seen the temperature, you know, it's like a temperature graph around people's are shifted a certain way, but then the age changes it because you, know, you always hear about, you know, when you're a kid, especially when you're a teen, when you could sleep till noon, I could sleep till one, no problem. Yeah. But then if you talk to someone who's 76 a lot of times they get up early and actually i've read in a hard way that there are more sleep disturbances it's difficult but you touch on this in the book you say it's actually natural for teens to want to sleep in go to sleep late you know late at night early in the morning sleep in and you wrote making them get up for school at seven in the morning which i got up for school at 5 30 or 5 15 because school started at seven is equivalent of making a 40-year-old get up at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there, I think, you know, there has been, I haven't followed it closely. I have a five-year-old, so I have, I'm not thinking about, you know, the needs of teenagers so much quite yet, but I have followed from a distance um, some of the shifting in start times for schools exactly because of this, you know, that it really was to expect, you know, a, a 14 or 15-year-old to be at school at seven is, you know, again, uh, if not traumatic, it's certainly confusing to yeah. their bodies. And w- if our goal is learning, uh, having them learn, you know, that is not, we're not creating the optimal situation for them to do that. Mm-hmm. So lots of information in here. Parents want to read this about sleep and light. Uh, what about light at night and cancer? An important subject. Um, and I think that uh, uh, I talked specifically in the book about breast cancer, for example. And, and there are some researchers, as I talk about in the book, who are really convinced in the connection between exposure to artificial light at night and the development, certainly an increased risk for the development of, of breast cancer. Some of the most dramatic studies uh, involve night shift nurses in Denmark, for example, that seem to show an increase rate of, of breast cancer. Other studies have, have touched on prostate cancer and the, the exposure to artificial light at night. It sounds a little funny to say it, but I think we, we, we have to say, unfortunately, we can't make that direct connection between, uh, you know, it's not a, a causal um, connection at this point between, you know, exposure to artificial light at, at night and developing cancer. We can't say that. But there does seem to be correlation um, oftentimes. And I, and I think, you know, for my money, I think that um, all these things that we're talking about come back to this, this point that, you know, we just never have evolved to be exposed to electric or electronic now light at night. And um, it seems like it's not good for our bodies. The studies seem to, to back that up. The fact that we don't have all the answers, that we can't make a direct causal link between these things, I still think, you know, Whenever possible, sleep in the dark, turn off the lights. Let's deal with this issue of light pollution. There's no reason not to. Um, it's, it's, I think, better to be cautious rather than kind of blow it off as uh, not important. 
Mm -hmm. And you had a sentence about how melatonin plays a role. And like you said, you don't know the exact role, but melatonin can be a cancer suppressor. I usually say that, you know, what, what I learned is that um, when we, it's essentially the same thing. When, when we uh, are exposed to light at night, it disrupts the production of melatonin and that a lack of melatonin in the blood has been linked to increased risks for breast and prostate cancer. I think that's usually how it's been told. But, um, you know, again, melatonin happens when we're sleeping, uh, happens in the dark, and uh, it seems like it's linked to these outcomes that we don't want, you know, a lack of melatonin. And so let's sleep at night and sleep in the dark. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's like those subtle perspective changes, because I feel like there's so much to do these days and there's all sorts of information out there. So sleeping is annoying because you have to do it and you have things to do. But if you perspective change and say, I would like to have more melatonin in my life, then this is a path that you can take. And the book really promotes, and you say it a lot, like if you flip the bathroom switch on the light, goodbye to your melatonin. And so you could have that in little bit of a goal more melatonin, and that's going to help with a lot of things. And even this perspective change on dreaming. I thought this was so interesting. You say, and I'm kind of the same thing. It's like you go to bed. The reason you go to bed is so that you can wake up the next day and do the things you need to do. But what if you change the perspective on the purpose is this melatonin, the sleep, the dreams. Do people connect with that at all? I like this. Have a relationship with the night. Some people, I mean, certainly some people that I know their dream life is a vital part of their life in general. And I think, you know, historically for humans, that has certainly been the case. Dreams have been an important part of being alive. On the sleep part of it, again, I, th I think I just finished a book uh, that just came out, a big bestseller by a guy named Peter Atia. Uh, he's a MD called Outlive. He has a whole section on sleep, you know, and just how vitally important. Um, and he talks about how he used to be one of these guys who wished he couldn't sleep because he's got all this stuff to do, as you suggested, you know, and tried to make it on four or five hours of sleep. And he realizes, you know, now that it's really doing a disservice to his health. Um, and as we think about wanting to live healthy as long as we can, uh, sleep is vitally important to that health. So. Yeah, for some people, you know, dreaming is is really important. That can be a cultural thing too. I think I talk about you know native uh, indigenous cultures and dreams being vitally important to understanding. You know, it, it reminds me of talking about how important it is for us to see the stars. It's always been a part of being a human being. It's largely for most people don't even think about doing it anymore. I think dreams are similar, where dreams have certainly been uh, a huge part of being a human being. And now for a lot of people, we just, just don't even think about it, you know? Yeah, we don't. I mean, I, I like this, have a relationship with the night because yeah. when I read that, I was like, I don't have one. I think I only have a relationship <laughs> with the day, right. but it's interesting to think of it differently as something of interacting with it at some level. Can we pop over to wildlife? Because this is a piece where you talk about nature that light at night impacts wildlife in five ways ordination predation competition reproduction circadian rhythm and one of the examples that you talk about is bats mm. and birds and, mm. and other insects yeah. what's i mean it's unfortunate why haven't i ever thought of this paul i've never thought about these animals and how the light is completely whacking out their systems so and one of the, it was just so easy like why don't we just turn off the parking lot lights like no one's there anyway so what's going on with the wildlife when there's light at night 
Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, again, one of the reasons I love, you know, talking about this issue and writing about this issue is it is something we can do something about. You talked about, you know, why don't we just turn off the parking lot lights? And I think absolutely. And I think it just comes down to, as you say, you know, most of us have not really thought about this. And so I, my hope, you know, when I'm feeling optimistic is that, you know, as people begin to learn about it and understand that we can start looking around and saying, hmm, you know, we really don't need to light these parking lots all night long. There's nobody there. Let's reduce the lights and we have the technology to do that and all that kind of stuff. The impact to wildlife is um, probably motivates me the most when it comes to this issue. You know, the cost to these, the, the lives of our fellow creatures from our overuse of light at night is really serious and so unfortunate, so unnecessary, we, you know, parking lot lights at the middle of the night, for example. Life on Earth has evolved with bright days and dark nights, and that includes all these nocturnal creatures, uh, so many creatures that have evolved to rely absolutely on darkness for all the reasons you mentioned. Then you have crepuscular creatures active at dawn and dusk for similar things. I'll give you a great example, which is migratory birds. Most people don't know that most birds, if we talk about North America, for example, we have more than 400 species of birds that migrate at night. They're nocturnal migrants. One guy, a well-known uh, ornithologist, I can't think of his name right now, um, but he said, uh, he said, if we could see the nocturnal migration of birds, it would be the greatest wildlife spectacle on the planet. Right. So you just imagine, for example, that you have literally hundreds of millions of birds in the air at one time. You know, if we could look up and see them passing over, it would just be incredible. It's sort of some people are familiar with the passenger pigeon in the, 19, in the 19th century, the flight of these birds for hours. They've evolved to uh, to fly at night for various reasons. The temperature is better. There's less wind. All the predator. There aren't you know so many predators, all those things. And our lights throw them off course. They're drawn off course by the lights. They end up flying into buildings and, and towers and that kind of thing or being trapped in, in lit up areas. Sea turtles are another one that people may have heard about where they've evolved to lay their eggs on shore and the hatchlings come up and scurry toward the brightest light on the horizon, the moon and the stars on the ocean. But now it's the parking lots and the gas stations and the street lights. They go the wrong way, right? And they, they pay the price. But really up and down the food chain. Insects are dramatically seem to be impacted by artificial light at night. Um, amphibians, even fish, if you can believe it. You know, there are studies showing that fish are impacted by artificial light at night. To me, um, and, and if, if folks are interested in going into studying wildlife biology or science, there's a whole world of studies that needs to be done on the impact of light on wildlife. But it just makes sense to me that, again, life on Earth evolved with darkness. And for us to just flood habitat with light or expose these creatures to light, it's going to impact them in negative ways. Almost, it just, it just makes sense. Yeah. The bats one was interesting too. You say bats are worth at least $3 billion to U.S. agriculture alone. They spend the night feeding, eating literally tons of bugs, saving farmers the cost of pesticide. And all around the world, bats pollinate fruits and flowers and eat pests that otherwise would devour crops. Controlling our light would be an easy step toward helping these creatures that do so much to help us. So very important, five ways that light at night impacts wildlife. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, 
never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Let's hit on childhood as the last topic here. It's actually what you wrote in here I thought was so interesting, Paul. Like we talk about how we are part of the last generation with analog childhoods. And we have kids that are coming up that are the first of a generation to have these digital childhoods. So as adults, we can look back and say, I had these really impactful parts of my childhood that were playing without adult supervision that were filled with movement and relationship and social experiences that weren't being videotaped on someone's phone, all of those types of things. But the kids that are in their 20s right now and younger, they don't have that. I think it's harder to fight for something that you don't even totally understand or that you haven't, I guess, that's probably a different, bad way to say it, for something that you haven't experienced yourself. Like, How do you fight for free play in childhood when you didn't get that? And there are a lot of kids that are growing up that haven't gotten that. And you take the same perspective here for the night sky. We have forgotten how good it used to be. I never thought about this. It's a huge problem. How do you fight for what you don't even know exists Mm -hmm. or existed? So can we talk about this perspective of preserving the sky for our kids, for our grandkids, for their kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just think that's really true that, um, you know, if you don't experience something, you're not going to, you're more likely to, to probably not care that it, it's fading away or that, you know, it, it doesn't exist anymore or it's in danger, those kinds of things. 
there's a, a real important concept, uh, which is uh, a declining environmental baseline, this idea of, you know, with each new generation, they take as essentially as normal the world that they inherit, which makes sense. But those of us who are older are kind of looking around and saying, you have no idea what it used to be like, you know, whether it comes to wildlife or the stars or or what have you. And that that is tough because if you, you know, folks take things specifically to to the stars or, or to nighttime, you know, if, if you grow up in artificial light, if you grow up in light pollution and you never see the Milky Way, you have no idea what you're missing. It's not your fault. Why would you think about that? And yet the sight of, I talk about how we've we've taken what was once one of the most common experience in, of humanity, which is walking outside and coming face to face with the universe. You know, this overwhelming, just uh, so many stars you can't count and all the things that that inspires in us feeling spiritually uh, good for our soul. You know, we're just awe, we're in awe that the importance of awe and wonder and all these things that used to be one of the most common experiences. Now it's one of the most rare experiences. I remember researching the book, I, I found a, a, an estimate that eight of 10 kids born in the US today will never live where they can see the Milky Way, just never have that experience. So I think when we're when we're thinking about parenting and you know for a lot of parents they're in that that boat too they may not have had this experience either or or rarely it's just so important to do whatever you can to get outside at night and have what experience is available to you and and that'll depend on you know where you live if you can get out and see the milky way for example and see the sky and that kind of thing it's an experience that will stay with you forever but even if you're in a place where there's just too much light for that, you still can get out and go from a full moon hike, for example, or like you suggested with the lanterns, that kind of experience. I just think these, what I call firsthand experiences with nighttime are invaluable for all of us, but for sure with our children, just to get them out of, there's so many messages from such an early age saying that darkness is scary and, and, you know, nighttime is, you know, for being inside and that kind of stuff. And to just break through that and take your kids out into a park and say, look up there and look at the, see that that's a planet, you know what that is, you know, and see that that's a constellation. And just, I think it'll stay with, um, it'll shape their lives. Mm-hmm. And your children's book, it, this is a topic that most children's books are not about, is what if night. Most children's books are like, go to bed. <laughs> right? But this is like, no, it's, I, I love that. And so you could incorporate, that's beautiful. You could incorporate that into your reading too, to get the ideas flowing and and to just bring up the topic. Because you had said that there's these studies about tranquility or like um like surveys, like what what does tranquility mean to you? Something like that. And that a clear night sky with no light pollution is always in the top three. People value it. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And when you experience it, you know, one of the the National Park Service has done really great work to protect darkness and to educate folks about light pollution. And it is always at the top of the, the list of experiences that people have in the national parks of going out and being outside at night, like we were talking about before. You're not alone. You're with a group of people. Maybe there's a ranger there, you know, and being out in a in a safe place and looking at the stars, listening, all that kind of stuff. It's just uh, a wonderful experience. It's a, it's a yeah. really enriching activity for everybody. Yeah, I went on a rafting trip. It was like whitewater, kind of. I mean, it wasn't really. It was just a rafting trip down the Green River in Moab, Utah this summer with our oldest daughter. And it was in the middle of nowhere. No phones worked. So there was no artificial light. And this guy was just absolutely phenomenal. 
it was so powerful. And I loved how in here you talked about how like fire doesn't, I can't, I'm not going to be able to find the sentence. I saw it earlier, but fire doesn't affect it. Oh, here we go. I did find it. Light from the moon, stars, candles, or fire. None of these are bright enough to cause a disturbance in your melatonin. And so you can still have like those fun bonfires and all of that at night. You talk about, we don't know what we've lost. There's an international dark sky places program about education and that this is all a win-win. I mean, it was, you turn your lights off. There's a less energy consumption. It's going to cost you less. You're going to sleep better. Paul, what a book. What a book. I mean, we only scratched the surface yeah. about a topic I didn't even know I was going to love so much. The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. This is a great book for a family because you're going to be able to do a lot. You're going to have ideas. You're going to get out in the night and teach your kids. It's similar to, like you talk about, wasting water. We turn it off when we're brushing our teeth. Don't waste the water. We don't have to waste the energy either. And don't light trespass. I mean, I've never heard of it, right? Like, you don't, you never think about that. Don't let your light go to your neighbor's house. This is an ethical issue. You want them to sleep well. So, Paul, I mean, what a book. And this, I didn't even really touch on. There is a lot in here to learn, but you wove in. It really permeates from start to finish. Also, the book goes from chapter 10 to 1. <laughs> nine to one yeah. nine to one yeah. nine to one that's right it's like a backwards so that was interesting i've never seen that before but the beauty there is i mean i've quote after quote in here we haven't talked about it because we're talking about more of the technical things but quote after quote about the beauty and the nate this is the nature this is our world and you have quotes from thoreau so you mm. wove together that part of it too and it's just a fantastic book i loved it from start to finish i learned different things about beetlejuice which i had no idea that it was spelled that way one of the stars in orion there's so much you learned in here too just different facts so paul what a book i absolutely got so much out of it and thanks for being here and also we always end our podcast with the same question and the question is what's a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside Oh uh, well, I'm I'm glad to say there are there are many such memories. Um, but I would say that uh, my first memory, when I was five years old, was uh, standing on the dock with my dad, um, looking across the lake at uh, a single satellite moving through sugary spreads of stars. There's so many stars, I I can still see it, you know, um, many many years later. But that's kind of firsthand experience. That sight really led me to where I am now. Mm -hmm. Paul, this has been such an honor uh, to have the author, the author of The End of Night here with us. Fantastic book. Check out the kids book. Great one to add to your year. What if night? Good one to get your kids thinking about these things and you as a family. Really appreciate it, Paul. Thank you, Jenny. It was my pleasure to be here. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable 
young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts.